No one being sent away. Okay, so we're going to be in Luke once again. Luke chapter number 17. And in Luke 17, uh, we're going to be seeing Jesus continuing uh, his time teaching his disciples and teaching the multitude to kind of get us where we're going here. Uh, we are trying to refocus on Christ. We are trying to get a clearer picture of who Jesus is by his teachings and his actions in the, uh, the record of the Gospels. And in this section that we're in in Luke, uh, he is teaching, he is preparing the, the disciples for his departure. But as he is preparing them, he's also provoking the religious leaders. He is uh, pushing ever closer to the cross as he's going through each of these things. The, the, the teachings and the illustrations that he has given is not winning him any favors with the, the religious elite there. And so what they're going to end up doing, of course, we know they're going to crucify him because of the things that he's teaching, because of the things that he's doing. But as his time is coming near, he's kind of doing things that's going to, to rush that on. There's been times that he has pulled back. There's been times that he has backed off. There's times that he has went away from Judea into Galilee to let things cool so that he is going to be crucified just on the very day that God has, just on the very time that God has appointed. He's going to do all things according to his will and his purposes, okay? And so he is beginning to provoke them. He's beginning to uh, push toward the cross, set his face toward the cross. And so what he's been doing, he's been using stories and parables to instruct and to provoke, okay? And we started off this kind of section here with the story of the prodigals, and it was showing that uh, God loves the religious as well as the rebellious, uh, that Jesus uh, loved the whole world, not just a select few. And for us, whenever we are away from God, we need to make sure that we return quickly. Yeah. Uh, Satan would have us to think we need to fear God, we need to stay in the far country, that God is disappointed, that God won't accept us. But we know that we have a loving Father that no matter how far we have strayed, no matter how long we've been in the pig pen, He is willing to run and accept us and celebrate us whenever we return to Him. He is the good shepherd that is seeking the one that is lost. Okay, And so if we are away from Him, we need to return quickly. When we serve God, we shouldn't condemn those who are struggling or straying, but love them and love the Savior. So we don't want to be like the prodigal. We don't want to be like the older brother because we have a father that is too good to us for us to stray or for us to strive. Yeah. Now, after that, we saw a sneak peek into eternity whenever Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, whenever he kind of pulled back the curtains and let us uh, see what things lie ahead of us. And it challenged us to view life differently through the lens of eternity. And whenever we consider what lay ahead of us, as we were looking at in Sunday school as well, when we see that glory lay ahead of us, whenever we see the heaven that he has prepared, we should approach this life differently. And uh, then the last thing that we were looking at, uh, last week we were talking about stewardship. We were talking about stewardship because God has given us all things. Everything that we have, everything that we possess, Every blessing that we have comes down from God. We would not even enjoy the very breath that we breathe. Our heart would not continue to function if it wasn't for God keeping us alive and keeping us going. Mm -hmm. Everything that we have belongs to him, and he has given it to us for as a blessing to us, as a benefit to us, but also as a tool. And so the things that he has entrusted us with is a tool that we can use for his glory. Yeah. 
And rather than saying that all of these things belong to me and it's for me to hoard them, it's for me to stockpile and for me to use it for my pleasure and my enjoyment, I instead look at the things that God has blessed me with and I use it for God's glory. I use it in ways that please Him. And whenever I use this life for His purposes and for His glory, then God is going to entrust me with more. He's going to take care of me through this life and He's going to reward me in eternity. And so we need to still be future-focused, I guess we should say. But today we're going to be continuing Jesus' teaching session. You might recall that it started off in the house of a Pharisee. A Pharisee, which we know is the ones that were constantly going after Jesus, invited Jesus over to dinner. This wasn't a friendly invitation, even though it was presented as being such. It was an excuse to get Jesus on his turf so that he could try to find something to ensnare Jesus by, to trap him with. And they were constantly doing this to Christ, and they were constantly failing. And so as Jesus was there, apparently it was somewhat of an open area. More than likely, it was like a a courtyard or something that would have been visible to the folks outside. And so there were multitudes that were gathering around and overhearing the teachings and things that was going on. And so as this is happening, several of the things that Jesus said, uh, such as speaking favorably of those that the, the religious leaders hated, such as the prodigal, such as uh, Lazarus and things. As Jesus was talking favorably about these ones that they hated, how he was talking about uh, things as far as stewarding our finances and using things for God's glory instead of for our own pleasure, this would have been uh, foolish sounding to the religious leaders. It would have drawn criticism from them, and they were openly mocking him during this dinner. They were making fun of him, kind of like Paul uh, whenever he was standing before Festus. And so all of this would have created hostility and tension uh, in that, that formal dining setting, okay? And so there were, was tension, and especially for the followers of Jesus, especially for the disciples. Can you imagine them listening to all of this, hearing all of these things going on, seeing them disrespect Jesus? They know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And they're listening to these guys kind of mock and kind of be... Um, dismissive of the things that Jesus says. And so anyway, these people were especially hostile because we know these are the ones that are going to be shouting crucify Jesus not too long after this, but the disciples are caught in between. And so with all that in mind, we come to chapter 17, and Jesus turns his focus from the Pharisees and from the multitude and turns his focus to his disciples. He knows the trouble that's in their hearts. He knows the struggles that's going on. He knows that they're getting angry, that they're getting upset, that they are desiring Jesus to do something about this. And so he turns to them and begins to instruct them. And we're going to look today at three kind of short and simple things that Jesus teaches and that he does that is to make a huge impact on his disciples. That is showing them the kind of things that are going to be necessary for them to become or for them to continue to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? One thing that we know is there is a difference between a believer and a disciple. There's many people in this world who are believers. There are many people who've put their faith in Jesus for eternity, but a disciple is someone who is truly taking in his word, taking it to heart, and living by it, following it. Someone who is truly desiring to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to take take his yoke upon them and learn of him, okay? That is a true disciple, And so there's a difference between uh, someone who is just saved and someone who is truly actually following Jesus and seeking to do that which pleases the Father. 
And so as we look in chapter number 17, I want to read just uh, the very first uh, little, uh, little example here, but we're going to continue onward past this as the, the message progresses. So chapter 17, verse number one, then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day turn again to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And so as we look at this passage, I said there's a hostile environment around them at this time. The disciples are getting worked up, and to use the, the word that is in this passage we just read, the disciples are offended. The disciples are discouraged. The disciples are upset. And anyway, as they are uncomfortable, as they are upset, they are trying to figure out why would Jesus put up with such, disre such disrespect. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And then later, just not too long after this, they're going to pass through the region of Samaria, and the Samaritans are going to look at Jesus and his disciples, know that they're headed to Jerusalem, and they're going to be inhospitable toward Jesus and his disciples. They're going to disrespect them again. And at that time, uh, James and John are going to say to Jesus, give us permission, allow us to call down fire from heaven. Let us judge the Samaritans like you judged Sodom and Gomorrah because they dare to disrespect you like this. They wanted to fry him like a piece of bacon. That was their desire. They wanted to do that. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know not what spirit you're of. They were offended. They wanted to retaliate. They wanted to lash out. And so we can see this going on with the disciples. And so if they were to be Jesus' disciples, they were going to have to learn some things. They were going to have to be different than this flesh, than this world. And the first thing that he brings out for them that they're going to have to learn is they're going to have to learn mercy. They're going to have to learn mercy. Uh, usually the word that jumps out to us from this passage is that of forgiveness. But I think the overall emphasis here is being merciful. And imagine this situation. Can you... I don't know if you all picture things in your head like I do. You all imagine you're in? Not like me. Okay. But what's going on? They're in this courtyard. There's multitudes around. There's the, the Pharisees and all the important people that are gathered around the table, and the disciples would have been there too. But there's all the other people that are around as well. And so Jesus turns away from the so-called important people, and he looks at his disciples, and he begins telling them this. He says, there is no way that you can help, but there is going to be offenses that come your way. There's going to be those who try to trip you up, try to make you stumble. This word that's translated as offense means a stumbling block. It means a snare. It means a trap. There's going to be those who try to trip you up, try to discourage you, try to cause you problems. And there's no way that you're going to get around that. And so basically what Jesus is teaching them is there is nothing that you can do to prevent it, but you can... Uh, you can determine how you're going to respond to it. We looked at that with uh, Paul in the first service, right? And so these people who were uh, provoking Jesus, these people who were offending the disciples, had no mercy. They had no concern for those who were poor. They had no concern for those who were impoverished. They had no concern for the feelings of others. They had no concern for what anyone else would think. They wanted to elevate themselves. They wanted to uh, win over the crowds. They wanted to be able to lift themselves up to a place of 
prominence and position, and they didn't care who they hurt to get there. They showed no mercy. In their opinion, the Pharisees, the guys that were there, they wanted to see the prodigal suffer for squandering his father's living. They wanted to see Lazarus frying in eternity and the rich man living up in heaven because obviously Lazarus must have been wicked or he wouldn't have suffered like he did on this earth. They didn't like the things that Jesus was teaching because it went completely contrary to the way that they process life in the world. They said, look at us. We are rich. We are important. We are powerful. God must love us. That was their opinion of life. And as Jesus teaching these things and kind of deconstructing their way of thinking, they didn't like it. They were angry. They wanted to unleash their venom and their vengeance, and they had no mercy. And as Jesus was pointing to this as an illustration, if you will, as he was showing religion's form of hatred, of persecution, of having no mercy, he turns to his disciples and says, you see them, don't be like them. That's pretty poignant, isn't it? He is looking at these at his disciples and he says, I know how you're feeling in your heart. I know how this is making you want to respond, but you have to have mercy if you're going to be my disciple. You can't go about it like this is. And religion has tried to do this all the way down through history. If you start studying out religious history, you find that these marks of the Pharisees, the way that the, the Pharisees were without any kind of mercy, that they were self-seeking and self-righteous, you see that marked within religion all the way through history. And Christ's disciples were never to be such. Instead, they were to be seeking the good of those who were oppressed, to be seeking the good of those who were straying and those who were struggling, and even to be seeking the good of those who persecuted them. Whenever you see Paul standing before Felix and before Festus and before Agrippa, Paul had nothing but love in his heart for those men who were trying to destroy him, and he was seeking them that they would be saved. Whenever Agrippa says, uh, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, Paul says, I would that you were both uh, almost and altogether, even as I am, except for these bonds. He says, I wish that you would become saved. I want you to know the God that I know. Even though they were dismissive, even though they were mocking and ridiculing, Paul says, I want you to know the Jesus that I know. That is mercy. And so Jesus telling his disciples here, if you are to be my disciples, you're going to have to know how to extend mercy. Uh, these people are going to uh, abuse anyone that was beneath them. They are going to abuse anyone that they disagreed with. And they are going to try to keep people from following Jesus. And the disciples are going to constantly be coming against such people as this. And the disciples are going to have to make sure that they don't respond in kind. They're going to have to, res they're going to, have to make sure that when no one else shows mercy, that they do. That's a difficult thing for us, isn't it? And so what he's telling them as a disciple, make sure that you're not one of them. Make sure you're not like them. And then he says, be certain that God's going to judge all of them. One of the reasons why we can show mercy is that we are not the judge. We are not the ones that are to be the, the, the scorekeepers. We're not the ones that are to make sure that everyone gets what's coming to them because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. God says, I am in control. God says, I am just and righteous and good, and I will reward every man according to his works. And so we can put our faith and trust in Christ through all of these things, knowing that he's the one in control. He says in this, woe unto them. 
Whenever you read that word, woe, it means judgment. Okay? It means that God is going to judge. Woe unto them that are becoming snares. Woe unto them that are being unmerciful. Woe unto those who are causing offense. And he says it would be better for them that the millstone be tied about their neck and they were cast into the sea. It would be better if they were drowned. Why? Because if they were dead, at least they could quit offending. They could quit heaping up judgment unto themselves. And so as Jesus teaching this in the earshot of all of these men who have been offensive, all of these men who have been unmerciful, Jesus is saying clearly to his disciples, you don't have to worry about those guys. You can show love. You can show compassion. You can show mercy because God, the righteous judge, will take care of all of it in the end. That unloads the burden off of us, doesn't it? It unloads the, all of that pressure off of us whenever we feel as if we have to justify ourselves. Whenever we feel as if we have to right the wrongs, we say, well, that's not my place. That's not my position. I know that God's going to take care of all things. But for right now, I'm going to live in a way that pleases Christ. I'm going to live in a way that glorifies him. I'm going to extend mercy to them, though they don't deserve it, though they're unworthy of it, because my actions are never contingent upon their worthiness. But my actions are contingent on the fact that he is worthy, that he has been good to me, and I am able to be a witness and to serve him. As we continue this, we, we see in this that he says, whenever you are the one who is offended. So he says, make sure you're not the offender, but whenever you are the one who becomes offended. Now, side note on this. In the culture we live in, the society we live in today, I'm offended is like the, the key to get anything you want, right? All you have to, do to say to, to shut anyone up, to shut anyone down, is I'm offended. If I say something that you don't like, I'm offended. This isn't what this is talking about. This idea of offense is a stumbling block and offense a trap, okay? And so whenever someone does you wrong, whenever someone comes against you, it's not I'm going to assert my rights, I'm going to cry foul, I'm going to, to, to go after them, I'm going to do the whole counsel, counsel culture thing. He says, whenever you are offended, whenever someone does you wrong, when someone tries to make you stumble, first thing to do is confront them about it. He says, rebuke them. And now that's not coming with harsh words and criticism. It's going and being honest with them and saying, hey, I don't like what you just did. I don't, I don't like the way that you've treated me. And then they respond and say, oh, well, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm sorry. And you... Forgive them. That's simple enough, isn't it? Is that the way we normally do things? No. no. We get offended. We go and blab it to everyone. We put it on social media. We harbor ill feelings and bitterness. And five years down the road, you've been mad at that person for those five years. And they don't even have a clue about it. That's messed up, isn't it? Yeah, and so what Jesus says is if someone offends you, don't harbor it. Don't get bitter. Don't get upset about it. Don't go and blab it to everybody in the country. Go to that person and say, hey, you have done something to hurt me. And if they, have, if they apologize, then forgive them. And there is no other stipulation. It doesn't say that they must make restitution. It doesn't say that they must seem sincere. It doesn't say that they have to show you a, to a certain extent how sorry that they really are. He says, if they ask you to forgive them, forgive them. No stipulation whatsoever. And he says, if they do it seven times a day, now, that would bring it in, okay, if they've done this to me seven times in one day, are they really sorry? 
I'm not going to forgive them anymore. No, he says if they do it seven times in a day, every time, forgive them. Now, we get messed up on this idea of what forgiveness is, right? Society has this idea of forgive and forget, impossible, and reckless, and kind of stupid, okay? God is able to forgive and forget. It says that our sins that he has forgiven, that he has cast as far away as the east is from the west. It says in the sea of God's forgetfulness, there to be remembered no more. Okay, God can forgive and forget. We can't. And if you do, you're foolish, okay? That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means I'm no longer keeping tally. I'm no longer uh, reckoning the accounts. I'm no longer holding this against you because this is what uh, forgiveness really is, is they did me wrong, but I am no longer going to demand that they repay. What unforgiveness is, is they did me wrong and I want to see them suffer, right? That's unforgiveness. And whenever we forgive someone, we say, I know they did me wrong, but I'm no longer going to keep account of it. I'm no longer going to hold it against them. I'm no longer going to demand repayment. I'm no longer going to demand that they suffer. Instead, I'm going to seek their welfare. Right? And whenever we compare that to Christ, Christ forgives us of our sins. He says, you no longer have to pay. I'm going to take that upon myself. I'm going to take the wrong and not demand that you be wronged for your wrong. And what it does is it unloads a burden off of us. We no longer have to be the scorekeeper. We no longer have to be going after vengeance. We no longer have to be going and settling the accounts. Instead, okay, they did me wrong, but I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm no longer going to demand repayment because as Jesus forgave me freely, I'm going to forgive them freely. Okay? And by the way, forgiveness is often an ongoing thing. This is a side note. Forgiveness is often an ongoing thing because every time it crops up in your mind again, whenever you start feeling a little bit of injustice, whenever you start feeling a little bit of bitterness, you have to go back and once again make a decision to release them from that debt. Okay? And so what Jesus says here, to be my disciple, you have to be willing to show mercy. And mercy in its very definition means they don't deserve it. Right? And so for those who we would oppress, for those who we would see as being undeserving and unworthy, doesn't matter if they're undeserving or unworthy. We still have mercy toward those who are without, to those who are sinful, to those who are struggling, to those who are having difficulties, to those who are being difficult, we still extend mercy. And to those who have done us wrong, to those who have oppressed us, we extend mercy. See how it goes both ways? Don't be the oppressor, and whenever you are oppressed, let it go. And Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's saying, you're going to be the outcast. You're going to be the hated. You're going to be the despised all the way through. And if you are unable to show mercy, on one hand, you're either going to be, you know, I guess on either way, you're going to be miserable. Either you're going to be oppressing or you're going to constantly be oppressed. But if you are willing to be merciful, if you're willing to let it go, if you're willing to show love and kindness toward others, then you can have real liberty. And so this is what we see here in verses 1 through 4. But whenever we come to verse number 5, it says, And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Can you almost feel that? Jesus is telling these people, Be good to those who mistreat you, 
and forgive those who have done you wrong. Don't oppress those, even the ones that that deserve it. And the disciples say, that's too much. We are not able of our own strength, of our own abilities to do what you are requiring of us. Right? Isn't that what that means whenever it says, Lord, increase our faith? They're saying we don't have what it takes. And I can, that resonates with me. As I'm looking at Jesus' life, at the way that he deals with people, I want revenge. I want justice. I want people to suffer whenever they make me suffer. That's the flesh. And whenever Jesus says, be nice to them, seek their welfare, seek their salvation, even whenever they hate you. When Jesus looked at the Roman soldiers that were crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is the mercy that he's talking about. I say, I can't do that, God. And so the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. Now, that's an incredible statement. It seems that Jesus is using an object lesson. There is a tree there in their presence somewhere. And he says, if you would have had just a little bit of faith, a mustard seed is very, very tiny. Okay, you've probably all seen it at one point in time. Mustard seed is very tiny. And he says, if you had that tiny, tiny, tiny amount of faith, you'd be able to, to say to this tree, be plucked up by the roots and cast into the water, and it would it would have to obey you. We get hung up on this passage and the whole thing of the tree being plucked up. I don't think any of us by our faith have been commanding trees to go into the water, have we? But that's not the point of what Jesus is saying. He says, in order to be my uh, disciple, you're going to have to be faith-filled. Okay? They said, Lord, increase our faith. He says, it's not the amount of your faith that is important. It is what your faith is in. Whenever they are saying, Lord, increase our faith, we don't have enough. We don't have what it takes to do what you are saying. He says, you're right. In and of yourself, through your own power, through your own ability, trying to muster up enough strength, you can't do it. But he says, if your faith was in me, if you had just a tiny bit of faith in the God who created all things, in the God who spoke everything into existence, the one who is able to keep all things going in order from the, the largest of the stars and the planets down to the smallest of the molecules, if you realized who he is, the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you know about God, the bigger he gets in your sight and the easier it is to relax fully in his hand. The God who created all things, but then came down to this earth as a man, lived a perfect and sinless life, taught these disciples, and at the end of it, surrendered himself to the hands of the Romans to be crucified on a cross. He gave up the ghost. He went in the ground, and he rose again the third day. He showed himself openly to multitudes. He ascended up into heaven, and he sets at the right hand of the Father, ever living, to make intercession for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is preparing a place for us. He's coming to receive us. One of these days we will be with him. If that is the God that you are serving, then is he not able to give you what you need to do what he requires of you? That puts it into perspective, doesn't it? He's not saving us and uh, calling us to service and to discipleship that we may, by our faith, pull up trees and cast them into the water. But what he is telling us is whatever I require of you, whatever I uh, command of you, whatever I have given you to do, 
if you will just trust me, if you will just follow me, I will give you exactly what you need to do it. There's no record of the disciples ever uh, commanding trees to be plucked up. But there is record of the disciples following Jesus, standing before the most powerful and the most wicked men of this earth, standing boldly before them, proclaiming the gospel. There is record of them going to the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel, turning the world upside down with the gospel, and finally giving their very lives as martyrs to the gospel because that is the lot that God had given them. That is the direction that he had them to go. And whenever they said, Lord, increase our faith, don't you think they had the faith they needed to go through all those? Don't you think God answered their prayer for that one? They weren't pulling up mustard trees. Or excuse me, that was mustard seed. They weren't pulling up sycamore trees. But they were turning the world upside down. And that's even larger. And so for us, whenever we are looking at the Word of God, a lot of the things in God's Word, we say that goes against my flesh, that goes against my desires, that goes against my very nature. But it goes right along with God's nature, and it goes right along with His Word. And if we follow Him, if we will be His disciple, we are going to need to trust the God that created it all, that sustains life, that has made all of these promises, that's made salvation available, and that's coming again for us, we have to believe that the God that did all of those things is able to do a work in and through us, and because of who He is, we can do what He has for us to do. It's not the amount of faith that you have, but who your faith is is in. If you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your own ability, you are going to be utterly disappointed. You are going to fall short. But if your faith is in him, if you are trusting him to work all things together in your life for your good and for his glory, he is more than capable, more than able to do it all. And this is the problem of modern day Christianity. We claim to have faith in Jesus when we are trying of our own selves, our own ability. Our faith is in ourselves. We're trusting us. We're saying, okay, I've got to try to do this. I've got to live the Christian life. I've got to try to put these things in place in my life instead of saying, I'm going to pursue after God. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to to allow him to do a work. I'm going to submit to, to his spirit. And because I know in myself there is no good thing, but through him I can do all things. And so I'm going to submit to him, allow him to do his good and perfect work in my life. Because whatever he desires, he can make happen. And so for us to be a disciple, we need to be merciful, but we need to be faithful. And as we continue in this passage, we come down to verse number 7. And it says, But which of you, having a servant plowing in a field, or excuse me, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from that field, go and sit down to me. And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things, which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now this this gets a little more difficult for us. 
as he's talking about these servants here, I know we have a relationship with God. We are not his slaves, right? But what he is telling the disciples is in light of what he has just told them. He says, I am going to empower you. I'm going to give you great things to do. I have, uh, I have different things that I am expecting of you as my disciples to show mercy, to do great things. And as you are growing and as you are going and as you are doing all of these different things, there's going to be a temptation that's going to arise in your heart. You see the very first word of verse number seven is but. He's just told them, if you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you're going to be able to speak to that tree, cast it in the ocean, right? But, so he's saying, whenever I'm using you, whenever I'm working through you, when you are accomplishing much, when you are showing mercy, while you're being my disciple, you're going to have to keep your pride in check. A disciple must be humble, right? Must be merciful, must be faithful, must be humble. So as we see in this passage, verses 7 through 10, what he is saying in this, he says, if you have a servant that goes out and he's doing his job and he comes in and all he has done is his job, are you going to be praising him? Are you going to be saying, oh, by all means, you sit down at supper, let me serve you? No, he's going to expect him to continue doing his job. And then whenever he comes to the end of it, uh, it says, uh, verse number 10, so likewise, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. He knew that these disciples were going to be robed in human flesh. He knew that they were going to have the normal pitfalls of being a human. He knew that there was going to be temptations whenever God is using people mightily, whenever Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people are being saved. He knows the flesh is going to come in and he's going to be thinking in himself, look at how great of things I am doing. Look at how I am serving the master. Boy, God must be pleased with me. Boy, I must be really performing well, right? Does that sound familiar? And whenever we start looking at our lives and saying, oh, look at how spiritual I am. Look at how godly I am. Look at the great works that I am doing. Look at how I didn't lash out at that guy. Look at how whenever that guy cut me off, I didn't cuss him out. I'm doing good. Right? And so as Christians, whenever we're going through our lives and God is doing work in us and his Holy Spirit is transforming us, whenever he is renewing us in our minds, whenever he is changing these things in us and working through us, then that flesh is still going to come back to us. And we're going to think, look at us, look at how we're doing. We are performing well. Or whenever we are suffering, whenever we are going through difficulty, whenever we're going through hardship, we're going to say, God really owes me for all the things I'm going through for his namesake. And we start getting this entitlement attitude. And so Jesus tells about this servant. He says the servant did what the servant was supposed to do. Why would he think that he is owed anything? Whenever he says here that he is unprofitable, that doesn't mean that he isn't bringing a profit to his master. It doesn't mean that he is worthless to his master. It means that the service that I am doing does not yield me, does not net me any extra pay. In other words, I have just done my job. Where, why would I get a bonus for doing my normal job? 
Why should I expect extra? Why should I expect them to heap praises? Why should I expect extra blessings just for doing what I was supposed to do? Does that put it in perspective a little bit? So for us as Christians, as we're going through, as we're serving God, he's, he saved us. He sealed us with his spirit. He has empowered us through his spirit. He is keeping us along the way. He is guiding us. He's directing our steps. He's doing, God is doing all of these things. And whenever we manage to control or temper one thing, we think that somehow God owes us something. We think somehow that we should have extra blessings because, hey, look, for once I did something right. Have you ever been there? Man wants so badly to feel like his good works are earning his salvation or earning his acceptance with God. He thinks that somehow the things that we are doing causes God to be impressed or causes him to accept us or to love us even more because of the things that we do. And that's really a lot of the problem with what calls, it, calls itself Christianity today. The Bible tells us that all of my righteousnesses, my very best works, are filthy rags. And so whenever we go out, we can feed the poor, we can go out and uh, give our all of our money, we can give ourselves to be burned for the faith, it says. But the very best of our works are still filthy rags. They're tainted by the flesh, they're tainted by pride, they're tainted by sin, and all of our flesh, all of our pride, all of our greatest works do not merit us salvation. They do not merit us God's favor. The Bible tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we ever will be is because of him and through him. The Bible tells us that we are accepted in the beloved. What impresses God is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What impresses God is the works of Jesus that were not tainted by sin, but that were freely done for the salvation of mankind and for his love for the lost. And so for us to think that because we are having a good day and we're keeping ourselves in control and because we've shared the gospel or we came to church or we've read our Bible or we've done these things, which are just the normal parts of Christianity, which are just really good things for us that's going to benefit us. We say, okay, God, look at me. Look at all the great things. Look at how I'm performing. God, don't I deserve some accolades? Don't I deserve some praise? This is a danger to these disciples. It's a danger to us. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to walk in humility, knowing that God is good and that he works his goodness in us. He works his goodness through us, and he doesn't owe us anything. Now, that's not for us to get cross and think, well, God doesn't owe me anything. I'm doing all this for nothing. Because the matter of fact here is I am a sinner and so are you. Each and every one of us deserve hell. We deserve to pay for our own sins. But God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Any value that I have, any worth that I have, is because of him. And so for us to think, okay, well, this is just our, our service. This is just our work. I'm not gaining. I'm not been a, we have received everything. God is not a stingy master. And even though we have been unprofitable service, 
we find in Scripture that he is still going to reward us generously, that all the things that we do in this life, all the things that we, we do in this life for his glory, for his benefit, one of these days he's going to reward us for it. He is going to be very generous. He's going to be very gracious, very loving. He has always heaped us with benefits. The Bible says that he daily loadeth us with benefits. And for us to think that he owes us more, we've already gotten more than what we will ever deserve. And so if we see him for how powerful he is and how much we need him, we're going to go to him in faith. If we see him for as gracious as he is and how much he's loved us and how much he has been kind to us, merciful to us, then we're going to be able to show mercy to other people. And whenever we realize that nothing that we have or nothing that we've ever benefited has been because we deserve it or we're worthy of it, but because he is worthy and because he is generous, then we can also be humble. We can see ourselves properly. And whenever we do these things, it brings us to our last thing that we're going to be looking at here. In verse number 11, it says, And it came to pass as he went through, or as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Master, or Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show thyselves unto the priests. And he came, and it came to pass as they went, that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at the feet, at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? They are not found. They are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. The final thing that we see in this is if we're to be his disciples, we also need to be grateful. We need gratitude. And I think that is sorely missing in this day. The Bible tells us that in the last days that men would be unthankful. And that's very much the case, isn't it? But as we look at this passage here, Jesus and the disciples are journeying along. He's been teaching them all these things. And he comes to this illustration. The lepers come to him. They have nothing to offer, nothing to give. There is no reason whatsoever that they deserve anything that Jesus is getting ready to do to them. And they cry out to Jesus and they say, have mercy, right? Have mercy on us and heal us. And Jesus tells them, go to the priests and offer up the sacrifices and the things that are necessary according to the law for you to be cleansed, for you to be pronounced whole from this leprosy. And before he ever heals them, before their skin is ever restored, before their disease is ever vanished away, they must make a decision and they turn from Jesus in faith to go the direction he's pointed them to. And whenever they respond in faith, they are made whole. Immediately, they, their leprosy is gone, their skin is cleansed, the disease is away from them, and only one of those ten men return to Jesus, and they bow down, and they worship, and they praise God for the healing that he has worked in their lives. The other nine go on their way, and they miss one of the greatest opportunities that life has ever afforded them. Yes, they are whole of their leprosy. Yes, their disease is gone, but... They do not come and bow at Jesus' feet. 
They do not give him glory and credit for the work that he has given in their lives. They do not show gratitude to the one who has given them so much. Whenever we look at our lives and we realize that we are like these lepers, we are lost and undone, we are oppressed by a disease that is terminal, is fatal, or is fatal, fatal and incurable, if we realize that we are all overcome of sin and we are doomed to die, not just a physical death, but doomed to die a spiritual death for all eternity, and that's what we deserve, when we realize that Jesus looking at us in pity, Jesus having mercy on us, loving us in spite of our filthy condition, that he looked at us and he had mercy, that he was willing to forgive, that he was willing to save, that he was willing to cleanse. If we see Jesus for who he is and for as good as he is, how can we not say thank you? How can we not have gratitude? We look at these uh, nine that went away and didn't so much as return and say thank you to Jesus and we look at them with a little bit of disdain. We look at them with a little bit of scorn. How could they? Do they not know who they were looking at? Do they not know who Jesus was? Do they not appreciate what he's done for them? But usually, we find ourselves guilty of the same thing. It is so easy to accept the benefits and the blessings of God. It's so easy to receive his salvation and to go about our way, doing our own thing, living our own life, and ignoring the one who has done it for us. But for this one who realized what a life-changing event this was, for this one who realized what Jesus has done, the power that he has uh, has in his abilities, the, the work that he's done in their lives, whenever this leper realizes it, he comes, falls down at Jesus' feet and gets to actually interact with Jesus, gets to have a relationship with Jesus. And I have a feeling that this man followed Jesus. Notice he was a Samaritan. He was an outcast. He would have been accepted by the priests. These other guys, they might have been cleansed by the priests, but Jesus pronounces the Samaritan cleansed, right? And so whenever we recognize what Jesus has done in our life, whenever we show gratitude, whenever we are grateful for what he has done, and we give him the honor and the glory and the praise that he deserves, then are we walking with him? Then are we able to be at his feet and learn of him? Then are we able to be his disciples? And so as we, as we look at these things, our challenge today was discipleship is more than just salvation. If we want to be Jesus' disciple, it's going to take us being merciful, forgiving those who have wronged us and not wronging those whose society seems to deem worthy of it. We need to be merciful. We need to be faith-filled. We need to make sure that our faith is in the one who is worthy of it. We need to make sure that we are trusting in Jesus and not ourselves, allowing him to do the work in us and through us because we can't do ourselves. We need to be humble because whenever God works in our lives, whenever he starts bringing about fruit in our lives, we're going to be tempted to be proud, to be arrogant, to think we did it ourselves. And at the end of the day, we are just doing the things that God desires of us. We're just doing the things that are our duty to do, basically. And then lastly, we need to be grateful. Seeing all of the great things that God has done for us and through us, and that there's no way whatsoever we would ever be worthy, that we could ever repay him, that we could ever... Uh, we could ever deserve what God has done for us, but he has been so 
bountiful toward us. He's been so uh, rich in his blessings toward us and his forgiveness for us. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for, you know, the, the goodness here on this earth, heaven awaits us. I mean, everything that he has for us, shouldn't we be thankful? Shouldn't we be grateful? Without him, we'd be nothing. Without him, hell would be our home. That would be our future. Without him, there would be no hope. How can I not be grateful? Final thing I want to say today is this message is, has been geared toward those who are believers. It's been geared toward those who are saved. This is to encourage you. We serve a good God. Don't get so wrapped up in this world. Don't get so tied up in this world that you refuse to be his disciple. But seek to live for him. Seek to please him because he is worthy. But here's the thing. As we look at this final story of the lepers, there may be some in here today that don't know Jesus as your Savior. You may be as these lepers here. We have a great God, one who loves you, one who can cleanse you. And just as he has forgiven and saved so many in this room today, if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's all it takes. You bring nothing to the table. He doesn't require you to go through rituals and ceremonies. He doesn't require you to do penance and repayment. He doesn't, he doesn't require you to suffer through purgatory and cleanse yourself through the fires. All that he requires is that you accept his offer of salvation. All that he desires is that you realize that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, and to call out to him and say, have mercy on me and cleanse me and he will do it. These lepers are a great example for us. They didn't go afterward. He didn't say, okay, I forgave you. I cleansed you. Now you've got to do all these things to keep it. They went on their way and they still they were still cleansed. Their cleansing wasn't based on anything that they were, anything that they did or ever would do. It was based on the fact they knew they couldn't do anything for themselves and they needed Jesus to do a work in their life, to work a miracle in their life, to cleanse them. And that's what salvation is. I am a sinner. I am without hope. I am bound for a, a horrible eternity, but I know that Jesus can do something about it. I'm going to put my trust in what he has done. That is my challenge to you. If you're a Christian here today, be a disciple. Don't settle for just having a fire insurance for just accepting him for heaven, but serve him on this earth as well. And if you're here today and you don't know that heaven's going to be your home, all it takes is you putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to forgive your sins and save your soul. And you will secure your home in heaven through Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the day that you've given us. We thank you for this time uh, that we have to together together and to fellowship around your word, Lord. And Lord, I've I've tried my best to bring about these these truths as feeble as I am, Lord. I just pray, Lord, for your people that they would have the desire to serve you, that they would uh, they would allow you to do a work in them, that they would walk uh, in mercy and humility and faith and in gratitude. And Lord, if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon you, that they would con confess their sinfulness and their faith and trust in you as our Savior. And we thank you for all that you do, and we do love and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.